0: All right, everybody. Come on back in. Thank you. It's good to see you guys catching up with one another. That's great. Uh, This morning, we are going to spend the majority of our time in Luke chapter 23. So if you have a Bible on your phone, on a tablet, if you have a physical Bible, that's great too. Uh, You have a couple of seconds to start to head that way. I would love for you to see this passage for yourself today. I think that's significant. If you don't have access to a Bible or you don't know how to find Luke 23, that's totally fine. We'll also have the verses for you on the screen, Um, but I would love for you to catch this story for yourself. Uh, This is one of the most important parts of Christianity that we're going to look at today. For the sake of context, I'm going to back up just a little bit into Luke 22, and I'm going to read just a couple of verses. So you can look at the screen for this part, and then we'll come together to Luke 23. Here's the context, in case you're not familiar with the story of Jesus of Nazareth. Luke says that when they came to the place that is called the skull, your translation may say Golgotha, which is just the Aramaic word for the skull, they crucified Jesus there. So we met on Friday night from 7 to 8. We did a Good Friday service. I always want to call it Black Friday because it's about Jesus' death, but that's the one where you get up early and shop at Kohl's or whatever. This one's Good Friday. Okay? We met for an hour. We heard the scripture read, and this was the story that we processed, that he was crucified there along with the criminals. There was one to his right, and one to his left, which is the reason why oftentimes you see three crosses depicted in Christian artwork. Verse 44, we speed up a little bit in the story, and we find out that it was now about noon, and darkness had come over the whole land until three o'clock in the afternoon, because the sun's light had failed. The temple curtain was torn in two, very spiritually significant, more than we have time to get into today, but that's an important detail. Verse 46, verse 46, And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, he's speaking to God the Father, his Father. He says, into your hands I commit my spirit. And after he had said this, he breathed his last. Kind of. Because that's where Easter comes in. That was the last breath he took on that day. He was brought down from the cross He was pierced in the side because he had already died when the Roman soldiers walked by. They didn't have to break his legs to force him to suffocate like they did the other two thieves on either side of him. He gave his spirit up, knowing full well what he hung on that cross to do. And yes, Luke is correct. He did breathe his last. But then we get to Luke 23, and this is what today is all about, beginning in verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week at early dawn, the women went to the tomb. And they took with them aromatic spices that they had prepared. We think this is probably two or three women who were part of Jesus' followers went to the tomb to do what you would typically do, to refresh the body after it had been entombed for a while, to make sure that it didn't begin to rot or smell terrible or degrade. Verse two When they arrived, they found that the stone that had been rolled in front of the tomb had been rolled away. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood beside them in dazzling attire, which is the Bible's way of telling you it was as if they were dressed in light. If you can imagine clothes that were just made of light itself. The women were, of course, terribly frightened, and they bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? It's a good question. Why are you looking for someone who's alive here in a graveyard full of dead bodies? Which, of course, they don't know that Jesus is alive yet. Verse 6. He is not here, but he has been raised. Do you remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee? So a side note for you here. If you've been following along with the book of Mark with us, we're still in the early days of Jesus' ministry when he's in Galilee. This is what these messengers are reminding these disciples about. Remember at the very beginning, years ago, what Jesus said to you. He told you that the Son of Man had to be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. And then, with that little reminder, verse 8, the women remembered Jesus' words. And when they returned from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven, which are Jesus' primary disciples, the ones who are named throughout Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. Now it was Mary Magdalene, it was Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. That's what Easter morning is about. In some ways, the way the Easter story develops in the Bible, it's almost anticlimactic. In a way, this is one of the more challenging passages to preach because Jesus has been working for three years. Every time he's preached... Every person that he's put his hands on and healed, the miracles he's done, the water into wine, the walking on the water, the bringing the dead back to life, all of these things have been preparing people to process and hopefully understand his death and to see it differently from every other death they've ever encountered, to see in his death a hope of something to come, a kind of birth. And unfortunately, when you read the story, it seems like almost no one actually gets it. After three years of intense study, following Jesus from place to place, spending the night camping out with him, watching him do ministry, being able to ask him any question that they have, still his disciples don't understand, to the point that when Easter morning arrives, no one's there waiting for Jesus to triumphantly return from the dead. Every one of Jesus' followers expects him to be just as dead that morning as he was the day before and the night before that when he hung on the cross. And so it's, it's interesting that we don't actually get to see this bird's eye view or, or even sort of watch the camera lens of the documentary of Jesus' life go inside the tomb and watch his body begin to breathe again and his eyes flutter back open and his heart come back to life. We travel with these disciples who aren't sure. They don't know. They're not sure what to expect, and in each of the accounts that we get in the Bible of what happens when people show up on Easter morning, the one thing that's consistent between all four of them is that the people are surprised that Jesus is alive. Now, I think I can say with authority that Easter is the most important day of the year for Christians, Maybe for you, you think of Easter as just one of maybe a half dozen days where you have to go to church or you get drugged to mass by your parents or your girlfriend or your grandmother. Maybe you would hold Lent as a season or Pentecost as a day or Ash Wednesday or Christmas Eve as equal in value, but I would argue that Easter stands above them all. Because without Easter, without the resurrection of Jesus, without a tomb that we show up to, not sure what will happen, only to find out that the one who is dead is now alive, none of the rest of those days really matter. This is the sun, no pun intended, at the center of the universe of Christianity, around which all of the other days and seasons and ideas orbit. It's all about today. Because Easter is the day that the good news of Jesus, what we call the gospel, a word that you've probably heard many times in the past, today is the day that that gospel proves itself true. It transitions from being a collection of teachings and nice ideas and maybe a guideline for a good moral life. It steps off the cliff and jumps headlong into the realm of the miraculous, the supernatural, the life transforming, really the truth that belongs to God. It does this by presenting a new reality to us, a reality that confronts everything we know about life and about death and our own mortal existence in between those two things. The story that Easter tells us, a story that no other story ever tells us, is that life can come from death. It's almost too good to be true. It's almost too hard to believe. Even me, a person whose primary occupation is to study God's word and to spend time in prayer for people like you and to try to provide counsel and lead a church and to be just kind of immersed in the Bible all the time. There are times where that kernel of truth at the center of all of it sometimes still is a little bit too much for me to wrap my mind around. That somehow God's plan is to take death, which seems to be his enemy on every page of the Bible and is the enemy of human flourishing in every day of the life that I live and you live. And God takes that thing and he turns it into the very best thing that anybody could ever have, such that even the physical death at the end of our human lives is no longer this penalty thing that we have to be afraid of and scared of that's looming over us. It simply becomes another doorway that we walk through on into an eternal kind of life. There's really nothing more profound than the truth of Easter morning. As a result of life coming from death, we believe that hope can come from despair. We believe that love can be born out of the hearts of people who hate one another. We believe that blessing can be born from curses. We believe that wisdom can come from the mouth of fools. And we believe that low people can be elevated to high places and that those who are now in high places can be brought low. All of these kinds of paradoxes hinge on the truth that life can come from death. The teachings of Jesus are full of these kinds of paradoxes, that the first will be last, you've probably heard that, or the last will be first, or that those who try to keep their lives will lose them, and those who give their lives away for Jesus' sake will find eternal life, or that there is wealth in heaven for those who invest in eternal things, and that those who build their kingdoms on money and power and position will have nothing in eternity. But none of those paradoxes really Matter. There really is no good, helpful principle or guideline for us to draw. There's no moral teaching for us to gain from those ideas if we can't start with life coming from death. The pivot point of Christianity and the pivot point of life on earth and in eternity is Christ returning from the grave. Frankly, without Jesus, without Easter, without a resurrection, these things don't really matter they don't even really make a lot of sense. There's a reason that for many, many years, lots of people have called themselves Christians, in the West at least, but haven't really followed Jesus, but have just taken parts of the Bible and built like a moral ladder for themselves that they can try to climb to heaven. Because that's all we really know to do. If we haven't embraced the resurrection, if we don't believe that life can come from death, then all the Bible has for us is moral teaching. Just another system that we'll do our best to live up to, eventually fail, and have to despair at. Moral teaching isn't really very helpful. You've probably lived long enough by now to figure that out. Someone telling you do better, do more, and fix it isn't terribly motivating and doesn't help very much. The teaching of the whole Bible is going to do your life very little good if you try to apply its principles, but you have not first surrendered your life to Jesus. Let me give you an example. I've studied lots of different religions from all over the world. I had to do that as part of my undergraduate degree, and I can tell you that one of the things that is unique about Christianity is that Christians are expected, based on the teaching of the New Testament of the Bible, to find joy in every circumstance. This is not something that most religions teach. Most religions are very happy for you to just not become violent when your day gets bad. Christianity wants you to smile through it, and worship God, and have a pep in your step, and a, and a word to share. That's kind of uniquely Christian. Christian. I'll give you a couple of quick examples from the Bible so that you know that I'm not making this up. In 1 Thessalonians 5, the Apostle Paul says that we should see that no one pays back evil to evil to anyone. That's retaliation. That's revenge. Paul says it's outlawed. Don't do it. But always pursue what is good for one another and what is good for all. Always rejoice, constantly pray, and everything give thanks. Why? For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In the book of James, early on in the writings of of Jesus' brother, James, he says, My brothers and sisters, consider it nothing but joy when you fall into all sorts of trials. I've never fallen into anything and felt joy. I've never fallen down. I've never fallen, like, into sin. That's not my natural bent. Maybe you're nicer than I am or you're an optimist. But he says that as you do those things, you should understand that it's the testing of your faith that will produce endurance. So no pressure, right? I mean, aren't these the kinds of Bible verses that you're used to seeing on bumper stickers, t-shirts, and coffee cups? We, we know that this stuff exists out there. We try to find a way to, like, oh, motivate ourselves so that we can get it right and be more joyful. Is that, is that how joy works? Oh, I'm going to be joyful today. I'm going to make sure no matter what happens, I'm going to be joyful. I don't think so. But this is the way that we tend to understand the Bible. Many of us, and I'm not just talking to those who maybe don't go to church very often. Many of us who claim Christ as Christians, we don't look at the resurrection, We don't really think about what Easter means. We skip over that core truth that life can come from death. And instead, we do the thing I mentioned earlier. We build for ourselves a moral code, a moral framework. If I were to boil down those two sets of verses that I just read to you, I think I could summarize them at face value and out of context that they sound like they're telling us to just do better. And maybe that's what you hear when you hear the Bible read aloud or taught or you read about Jesus To summarize Paul's writings in 1 Thessalonians, he says, don't take revenge. Don't even take petty revenge, the kind that feels really nice and maybe doesn't actually hurt anybody that badly. Try to help everybody have the best life possible, even your enemies. No pressure, right? And also, always rejoice. Never stop rejoicing. Rejoice is not a word that we use a lot, but basically he's saying always live like your favorite team won the Super Bowl. 365, seven days a week. That's the attitude you're supposed to have. You should also pray all the time with all the time you have left over when you're not forcing yourself to act like you're rejoicing. And you should be thankful no matter what's going on. You should always have a thankful heart. And even if life is painful and depressing, why should you do this? Because God wants you to. So so go out there and do better. James says, think of all the hard stuff in your life. And as you think about it, try to make yourself experience joy along the way. Why? Because hard stuff makes you tougher. I mean, that's my interpretation of trials produce endurance. Out of its context, it almost sounds like James is an army recruiter, right? Like if you kept reading in James chapter 1, you might expect him to say in the next verse that pain is just weakness leaving your body. It kind of sounds like that in, in the middle of James' letter. Do better. Help everyone. Do better. Rejoice. Do better. Pray more. Do better. Be thankful. Do better. This is the way that most of us hear the Bible speaking to our lives. This is most of what we expect to get when we approach the Jesus of the New Testament. We love the example that he lived. We aren't sure what to do with his words, with his teaching. It feels like he's almost this big, angry, invisible coach in the sky screaming at us to get it right this time. And then before we even really have a chance to catch our breath, there he is blowing his whistle and we have to get back out there and we have to try again. This is often what we expect from Sunday morning sermons like the one that I'm delivering to you now. So what do we do? What can a person do when they understand that the Bible has expectations for them and they're trying to live up to those expectations? Well, I think you have probably two options that I see most of us giving into, surrendering to. On the one hand, many of us choose to fake it. We really have no idea what it would be like to actually find joy in controversy, so we just fake it. We try to figure out what joyful people look like, and then we try to look like those kinds of people. And we try to figure out what joyful people act like and sound like, and then we try to act like and sound like those kinds of people, even though we're just as angry, just as bitter, and just as filled with hatred in our hearts. We settle for this. I really don't think that there's another group of people on the face of the planet who are more comfortable faking their way through life than people who call themselves Christians. We spend a lot of time faking nice for God. Shallow, empty smiles, Bible-verse platitudes, slapped on people's problems like a Band-Aid, hollow commitments to pray for each other. These are the kinds of things that fill Sunday school classes in small groups in all kinds of Western churches. So some of us, approaching the Bible, not seeing Easter, not seeing the resurrection, not understanding that life can come from death, we just embrace death dressed up like life. We choose a kind of fake Christianity, lipstick on a pig, if you will. I grew up in East Texas, and that was the way that we would talk about things that looked nice on the outside, but weren't something that you wanted to invest your life in. And we can't fake it. Maybe that feels disingenuous to you. A lot of us have grown up in a social media generation where being real or genuine or raw is somehow meritorious. It scores us points with other people. So maybe we won't fake it. We refuse to. So instead, we just fail outright. We just try and we try and we throw ourselves at the laws and rules of the Bible for a few weeks or a few months, but we reach a point where we fail. And when we fail, we feel that we have proven to ourselves what we always suspected, that we never really changed and we never really will change. And so we give up and we walk away. Maybe we feel better about ourselves than we would if we were practicing fake Christianity, but the fruit in our lives is the same. We give up We turn our backs and we walk away embracing failed Christianity. Now, for those of us who have settled for something fake, and only you can really know if you've done that or not, those of us who have chosen to just give up and embrace failure, the solution to both of these positions, both of these attitudes, both of these outlooks is to try to remember Easter. Because Easter is the point where being fake comes to an end. And Easter is the point where being a failure is okay. Hear me, without Jesus' resurrection, I don't blame you if you're fake. Fake is the best you can do. If you don't really believe that Jesus died, was buried, and came back to life, bringing back with him a new kind of life that's on offer for anybody who wants to follow him, anybody who wants to, by grace and faith, be saved from their sin, if you don't believe that, then fake is the best you'll ever do. And that fakeness will last a little while, and then eventually you'll wind up across the aisle with all of those who gave up a long time ago. Because it's not worth it. Fake Christianity doesn't feel very good for very long. Here's what happens when you're a fake Christian. You betray your fake Christianity. It loses its shine. You mess up. You slip up. You make a mistake. You make a fool of yourself. You put your foot in your mouth. You misquote a Bible verse or cuss at Sunday school or whatever the unspoken rule is that you can't do in your Christian bubble. Yet all the other fake Christians jump on you like piranhas they turn their back like that because they can't afford to be associated with a person like you. It's just a new version of Phariseeism. And an ironic sense is, though you may be trying to outrun eternal hell by faking your way into heaven, you get put through hell by fake Christians anytime you slip up or show weakness. Either way, fake Christianity is just a temporary stop on the way to failed Christianity. And once you get there, you lose your faith and you begin to see the church And all the churchgoers as too dangerous to ever give another chance again. Without Jesus' resurrection, nothing about Christianity makes any sense, and none of it matters. Maybe you don't know this, but your Bible actually says this too. In Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, in chapter 15, he says this He says, Now, if Christ is being preached as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So, believe it or not, even 2,000 years ago, people had scientific issues with resurrection. They had arguments and there were their version of blog posts and they had philosophers that stood in public squares that argued against these kinds of things. And Paul is saying, look, you can't follow Jesus and say that you have beef with the idea that a person can come back from the dead. The resurrection is the key. He goes on in verse 13. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, if that's what you believe, then all of our preaching is futile and your faith is empty. That's what I would call fake Christianity or failed Christianity. He says, also, we would be found to be false witnesses about God, because we've testified against God that he raised Christ from the dead, when in reality he did not raise him if indeed the dead are not raised. Paul's saying worse than just being fake, we would be blaspheming God by saying he would do a thing that you say that he can't do. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless because you are still in your sins. And furthermore, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. For if only in this life we have hope in Christ, then we should be pitied more than anyone. So if Jesus is just a teacher, if he's only a rabbi, if he's only a guru, if he's only a spiritual guide, then we are the kinds of people that should be mocked in culture, that should be the butt of jokes in movies that should be pitied more than anybody, because we're fools, we're idiots. Without the resurrection, without that core truth that life can come from death and that Jesus conquered death for us, nothing else matters. Some of us know all too well what it is like to fail to see the resurrection. Some of us have lived nearby Christians in churches long enough that we have a laundry list in our head of people, names and faces, where we would say, that person was a fake Christian and that person was a failed Christian. For some of us, that's all we've ever seen of Jesus and his gospel. Here's what I want you to know. Easter is for people like that. Easter is the one opportunity that you have to look away from the screwed up, messed up church and the Christians who may or may not be saved, who knows, based on how they're living and what they love. You can ignore all of that and you can turn your eyes on an empty tomb. That's only ever happened once. And Jesus did it because it's the focal point of our Christianity. Easter is for us because Jesus is for us. Jesus is for you. Without Jesus, all you'll ever hear from the Bible is do better. That's the only chance you stand is to open the Bible to any page and hear a bunch of moral teaching that's going to crush you into dust and lead you to despair and self-hatred. Without Jesus, fake Christianity and failed Christianity are all we'll, ever able, all we'll ever be able to manufacture for ourselves. So like Paul wrote to the Corinthians, if Jesus is only helpful to us in this life, then we should be pitied more than anybody else. But he's not. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. Jesus returned to life. And now, with Jesus, anything is possible. With Jesus, with the resurrected Jesus, the impossible standard of the Bible changes. It changes from something that you have to live up to into a description of the life that God is giving to you the life that Jesus lived for you, the eternal kind of life that he offers you freely. And it's a gift. It's a gift that is his to give because he paid for it with his death, because the tomb is empty, so the check cleared. The miracle of Easter is the focal point of the Christian life. The resurrection of Jesus is the point where love for God was born from hatred for Jesus and his teaching. The miracle of Easter, the resurrection, is where the blessing of life with God was born from the curse of sin and wickedness and every other kind of evil on the face of the earth. The resurrection is the wisdom of God shared with you, Spoken to you from the mouths of fools like me. The resurrection is where the lowest people, the scum of the earth, are elevated to life with God, ruling and reigning in eternity as God has always intended. The resurrection is the birthplace of life that is stronger than death, and it is the starting point for understanding the upside-down kingdom of God. All of Jesus' teaching, every paradox about rich and poor, humility and ego, honor and pride, leaving the many to find the one, all of these things are rooted in the good news of Easter, that life can come from death. So here's what you don't need to do, is do better. It's not going to get you anywhere. What you need to do is what you may have never tried, which is giving up, surrendering, coming to an empty tomb, not sure what to expect. Maybe you think Jesus is dead. Maybe you have the same attitude and expectations as that group of women on Easter morning. And you have something nice to bring with you because that's what's expected of you, but you have arrived here today and someone is telling you, he isn't here, he's alive. And you're perplexed. And then you think, I've heard about this Jesus. I've heard these teachings. I remember some of that stuff from when he was in Galilee. The way that he loved the poor, the way that he healed the sick, the way that he lifted people up and broke all kinds of chains of of dominion that were in people's lives. Oppression and pain and generational curses. I remember all of that. And I wanted to believe that. But there's something about somebody dead coming back to life that just feels like too hard of a pill to swallow. It's all one thing. That same Jesus who taught those same wonderful things made sure that the commitment that he made to live that life finished with a death that could purchase that life, not just for himself, but for all of us. The same Jesus, the same teaching. You need to come to him, and you need to receive from him the life that he died to purchase for you, the life of joy that you want, the life of love that you've been trying to build for yourself. The life of rest, the life of peace and patience, goodness and kindness. The kind of life that stands strong for justice and the life that also lays itself down for those it loves. Now a decision to come to a Jesus like that is what people like me who work at churches call a spiritual decision. It doesn't cost you any money. It's not something that you need me to necessarily be a part of. It's something that happens between your eternal human spirit and the living Jesus who lives even now. There are no magic words you have to say. There's no special prayer or liturgy or offering that you need to make. You don't have to even move from where you're sitting to meet with God and give your life to him. What better day, my friend? What better day than today, the day that people arrived at the tomb to find it empty? You don't have to have all of your theological questions answered. You probably never will. I've been to seminary. It doesn't check all the boxes, trust me. There will be some mystery remaining on the day that you step into eternity. What you need to understand is that there is a love that was big enough to come to you. And that's what sets this Christianity thing apart from every other system of belief and religion in the world. God is not waiting for you to clean yourself up and come to him. He came to you while you were filthy and he died in your place. Today is the best day possible because it's the day that you have to give yourself to God, to meet with God and give him your life, to give up on your trying, to give up on all of your fakeness, to hand him all of your failure and receive mercy in return. But I'll say this to you, though you don't need anybody's help to do it, sometimes it can be a little bit easier to take that step when you can take it with someone who cares about you. So I want you to know that I'm here for you. I told you a little bit earlier during the announcements, my name is Philip. I have a name tag on that will remind you of that if you've been wrestling with what it might mean to follow Jesus, if you have a question about that, if you feel stuck along the way, or if you heard something about the truth of a risen Christ that has put all this into perspective for you today and you're ready to go, I'm here for you. You don't need me. We'll be together in eternity. We might as well get to know each other today. But I'd be happy to stand with you, to hear your heart, to pray alongside you, and to be present when you give your life to Jesus. If you're uncomfortable coming down to the front where I'm going to be standing today, Mike, who you heard at the beginning, who read those quotes and revelation to us this morning to kick off our service, he's in the back today. He's just a few feet behind the back row, standing there. He would love to talk to you. He would love to pray for you. If you have a sibling, if you have a child, if you have a spouse who you wished would have been here today and they didn't show up and you would like us to pray for that person's salvation, we are here for you. There is no pressure at all. We're gonna take just a minute and pray together, then the band's gonna come and lead us in just one last song, And we'll finish our service with our benediction like we do most weeks. But I want you to know, for the duration of that song while the music is playing, I'll be standing right here. Mike is in the back, and we're here for you. And I don't want you to feel any pressure, but I want to make sure that you know that if you're ready to meet Jesus and you'd like somebody to walk with you, to approach him and speak to him, maybe for the first time, that we're here to do that with you. My friends, Jesus is not dead. That's what today is about. Hope can come from your despair. Joy can come from your mourning. Life can come from the death that you have lived until now. And your eternal life with Jesus can begin today. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. God, we are thankful for being able to celebrate that you are alive and you're listening. I believe every time that we pray together, every time we pray alone in our life groups, in the car, at work, in the shower, before we go to bed, before we eat, all of those times, God, you are living and present and you're listening You're listening even now. So I pray, God, that you would give us courage to speak to you. Maybe all of us would say that at some point in our past, we gave our life to you. But maybe for some of us, it's been a very long time since we've spoken with you it's been a very long time since we felt safe in a church, or it's been a very long time since we wanted anything to do with Christianity or Jesus. God, maybe it's the reputation of Christians in our community, maybe it's something that's happened within our family or a negative experience we've had in the past, or maybe it's just our own wickedness that has led us to pursue pleasure and to destroy whatever we have to to get it, God. Regardless of where we stand, whatever position we're in, however near or close we think we are to you, I know that you are right here next to all of us right now so I pray, God, that you'd give us the courage to step out. I remember the day when I was seven years old. I didn't understand at all. I hadn't read the Bible cover to cover, but I knew there was a Jesus who had died. He was alive and that he would protect me forever. And all I had to do was ask. Give us that kind of faith today, God. Give us courage to follow you and to meet you here today. We love you. We trust you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. You guys can stand up on your feet. We're going to respond in one song. I'm here. Mike's here. We'd love to talk to you if you'd like some